0: Hola, Joshua Smeiser de Leon here, founder and host of the Paseo Podcast. Thanks for listening to the show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo Boricua and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Basel podcast on SaveChicagomedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos a todos, this is Joshua Smizer de León for the Paseo Podcast. Uh, We have Nina Vasquez joining us today. She's a historian, community activist, and educator. Uh, And to give you a a quick high-level view of today's episode, I was on Twitter, as I feel the way I develop a lot of the topics for this show, um, but I was on Twitter and I saw Nina tweet this thread, and uh, it was on something called the Black Code, specifically the Black Code in, in Puerto Rico. I thought, And let's have a conversation and and take a deeper dive. So really happy to have you on the show, Nina. How are you doing this evening?
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm doing well, doing well.
0: I like to give our guests space to share a little bit about themselves uh, with our listeners. So um, Nina, what should our audience know about you?
1: I am originally from Puerto Rico. I am from the west side of the island. Um, Particularly Aguada, Puerto Rico. I moved stateside when I was 13 years old. Um, I moved to Connecticut and then um, finished high school here and then went to um, college here. So I went to college at the the University of Hartford and I earned two bachelor's degrees, one in criminal justice and then the other in political science. Um, both with a focus in racism and anti-Latino sentiment. And then I got into the University of Connecticut, which everybody knows is UConn. And I ended up studying at El Instituto, um, which is the Institute of Puerto Rican, Caribbean, um, Latino, and Latin American Studies. What I ended up studying within that was history. Uh, particularly Puerto Rican history, um, 19th century Puerto Rican history. I absolutely loved it. At UConn, I ended up doing my master's thesis in the black code um, in Puerto Rico and what that looked like um, for black folks living on the island.
0: A couple of questions in your intro, just fat, just, just genuinely interested. Um, So in Connecticut, and I'd love like weird data like this, but like in Connecticut, we're talking about just under three hundred thousand Boricuas, yes. um, so like a pretty substantial amount. That's how, that's more than than we have here in Illinois. Um, what is it like being a Boricua in Connecticut? Like, what's that? What's that experience like?
1: It's pretty. It's pretty cool. I think when I moved here from the island, I definitely noticed very quickly that everywhere I went, people were speaking Spanish, but also speaking Spanish that sounded like with my accent, right? Mm. So like, I kind of felt in those little pockets, I felt like I was home. Um, Then there's a very strong sense of, in Connecticut at least, but I'm pretty sure that like New York can be very similar, but a very strong sense of um, Puerto Rican independence and what Puerto Rican independence looks like and things like that. So I honestly, like, I can't even lie. I think I really started thinking about my identity Um, a little bit more critically and just thinking about independence a little bit more critically because of Puerto Ricans in Connecticut. Um, You know, there's a lot of outside and inside influences in Puerto Rico when it comes to discussing the status, the political status. Um, Then being uh, in the diaspora and looking at it from a different perspective, I guess, honestly has fueled my activism, has fueled my passion, has fueled a lot of things for me.
0: You as La Maestra, now what is the Black Code?
1: Um, let's start off, I guess I want to start off like with simple, right? So I need to give some background in order to like Please. really properly understand the Black Code. So, um, prior to Puerto Rico being under U.S. rule, um, Puerto Rico was under Spanish rule, Right. Um, And we're talking about like, for the Black Code, it takes place like in the 1800s and early 1800s. And then the 1800s, there's a lot happening, not in Puerto Rico, but just in the Caribbean in general, and honestly, in in Spanish America. So you have um, revolts in Cuba, revolts in Haiti, revolts in Dominican Republic. Um, You know, you have revolts happening in Jamaica. You have revolts happening in all these different islands across the Caribbean. You also have a very big revolt happening in Mexico. Um, All these territories, all these places where Spain was in control of, right? So when all these places are revolting around the same time, Spain starts getting nervous, uh because that means that clearly their grip is slipping. So they're like okay, we need to do something, um something's wrong, we're losing our power, we need to gain our power back. So then you have this person Juan Prim, right? And Juan Prim is he was a soldier, right? He was like one of the highest ranks in the army for the Spanish army, but he was also very good friends with um Queen Isabel from Spain. Very, very good friends with her. So essentially what she did was she goes, listen, Juan Prim, I'm having these issues in the Caribbean and I need you to go from Mexico to the Caribbean and settle in the Caribbean and then figure out what's happening there. And then honestly, just figure it out and get it back into place. Right. So he's like, okay, cool. Um, Let's do it. So he goes from Mexico Um, and then he settles in Puerto Rico because he finds out that there's something happening in Puerto Rico that, um, is making them nervous. So there's a whole bunch of revolts happening, um, not only with black folks in Puerto Rico, but just people in general who are overworked, um, and exploited in Puerto Rico under the Spanish regime. So he goes and he says, listen, um, I'm going to basically be here and I'm going to be like checking out all these towns and cities, see how everything's working. I need to see if like the people who we have enslaved are doing whatever they need to do, um, whatever. So um, what he ends up doing is he notices that, I guess what he describes is that the uh, owners of the enslaved are not doing their job properly. So he feels the need to step in and write a code, which is the black code. Um, and in this code it was his way of honestly, like putting everybody back in their place. So this black code, um, I ended up finding like the first, one of the first drafts that he drafted, the one that like was pre-drafted um, before it was published. So there was a lot of things that after the one that was published and that it didn't, like there's just things that didn't make it to the last. Dropped, um, but most of it did. So essentially, in that black code, Juan Prim discusses how appalled he is with what he calls and what he describes as the black race, um, the African race, uh, more specifically. And he, this is one of the first codes we see in Puerto Rico where the Spanish are actually finally making a very loud, written divide. Um, Where they're saying, you know what, even if you're poor and white, you are still white. Mm. Um, And that's one of the first written things we see in Puerto Rico where like now we're seeing that whiteness is stronger than um, your your financial background. Right. Um, Unlike the United States, that has almost always been the case where like whiteness has always been held above, um, even with the financial background being. Um, different and diverse, but in Puerto Rico, it took a long time for that to happen. So Juan Prim makes it a really big deal and writes that down in the Black Code. So he says, anybody from the white race who is threatened by somebody from the Black race has full autonomy to cut off their hands, um, to punish them how they see fit. So essentially, if you go from, you could cut off their hand and punish them essentially how you see fit, that does leave room for even murder. The title <laughs> of the Black Code at first was Des Manes Africanos, which means out of order Africans. Um, again, essentially hinting towards that there's something out of control happening in Puerto Rico, uh, especially with Black folks. So he's making it very, very... Um, obvious that to him the problem is nothing else and nothing more but the Black people living in Puerto Rico. Um, And he ends up passing this code and then he asks for a stronger tracking system, which that is also a very important part for our history. So prior to this Black Code, Puerto Rico did have a tracking system when it came to enslaved people. So the tracking system was honestly all done on paper. Um, and honestly, for us at our, in our century, that wouldn't be effective, but for back then, and it was very effective. So essentially what they would do is um, it would be a piece of paper and it, it was a chart. And the chart was divided by like um, eye color, texture, um, skin color, name, um, name of owner. That's how it was breaking down. Then it would be, it would have another column all the way at the end and it would say, it would say um, like additional notes, right? So, like, meaning like um, if you notice that the person had a birthmark in their face or something like that, like you would write that down on that column. So, um, essentially, like these Spanish officers would go into the homes of like slave owners and they would sit down and they would tell the owner, hey, bring me the people you have enslaved, right? So they would bring them, sit them down, and then the Spanish official would then look at them, sit in front of them, look at them, and then annotate all their physical characteristics and things like that. Then at the end, they would have um, the owner sign off the paper. So, essentially, now they would take this paperwork, bring it to San Juan, and then have it looked over, archived, and then eventually sent back to Spain. Um, Again, they had full record of who was where, um, when, how long, and how old, and what they looked like. So, another important piece of this is that the the Spanish were really honestly cataloging what and who was Black. What did blackness look like to them? um, And what was blackness to them? So honestly, it's very hard to say in our terms of what we think blackness is, if it's the same or similar to what they thought um, back then. Because sometimes they would write on the paperwork, oh, um, is a few shades darker than me, has a fine nose. But then in the race category, they would put black. So it was room there was room for a lot of error there was a room for a lot of bias room for a lot of racism and bigotry and all those things so um that existed so then what juan prim does is he goes okay you know those um that registry that we have well i want that but like times 10 so times 10 means now they're doing location what um what town they're located in. Now they're asking them if they have kids and if they had kids, you know, are they under that same house or were they um, gifted or purchased by another house? Um, now they're asking them how long have they been working in that house? They're asking them if they have ever escaped um, and things like that. So now with this black code, another thing that Juan Prim was pushing for was well, now, if any of these people who are enslaved and they run away, we know exactly where to trace them and who they belong to. So we could go back and not only punish the slave, but the owner as well.
0: Looking at, uh, if I understood you correctly, when you talked about the differences between the approach to, to, to race or, or uh, status in society in, in Puerto Rico compared to the U.S., uh US was would be based more on race whereas at the time you're saying before the black code your status in society would have been based solely on class or ma- yes. ma- uh, mainly on class yes okay Correct. and so so we saw more of a leaning towards the the US outlook on your your status in society you, you also mentioned, Nina, that there was a first draft and you had gotten your hands on that first draft. Uh, you said a majority of it was was pretty much kept in into the final um, version of that policy. Um, do you, I'm putting you on the spot here a bit, but do you do you recall what wasn't included from the original version?
1: One thing that wasn't included from the original version was I guess they were going to they were supposed to be taxing um, the owners if they like had one of the people they had enslaved um, escape. Um, So instead of being taxed, they would be punished or even thrown into jail. So, again, I guess there was this thing where he was like, maybe this isn't me being harsh enough. Maybe I need to be harsher. Right. Maybe I need to instill fear, not only in black folks across Puerto Rico, but also the white folks who own them.
0: let's talk about that a bit more i mean was it just taxes was it just taxing slave owners that was taken out
1: another one was i guess he at the first draft he had a list of things where like he thought that were like very very disrespectful Mm -hmm. um that black folks would do towards white folks so basically like um raising your tone at white folks in Puerto Rico or, you know, disagreeing with white folks in, um, in Puerto Rico, things like that. So he had a list and honestly, that list never made it to the final draft. Instead, it was basically if you're threatened or anything they do, that is disrespectful towards you, you have the right to lash back.
0: Looking at reactions at the time to the black code, uh, you talked about how slave owners would be punished if they did not adhere to this policy. Um, were there any slave owners that were like, "F that, um, I, well, I'm, what, what I'm doing isn't right. I'm gonna challenge this policy." Did that exist? I feel like it wouldn't, but was I feel that like, a thing? I don't know.
1: I don't know. So I didn't, I didn't um get to that scope of my research. But what I was um finding was that people like Ramon Betances, right? Um, what a lot of people don't know about Ramon Betances was that he, what he was doing was he was baptizing, um, black children because in Puerto Rico, if you were a black person and you were baptized, um, you had a very, very high price and people weren't able to afford you. So basically your way out of slavery in Puerto Rico during that time was to be baptized. Um, so I know there were cases like Ramon Betances um, across Puerto Rico where they were honestly like baptizing black children, um, so they wouldn't be sold into slavery. That's one thing that I did know um, for a fact.
0: What happens then, though? I mean, the par- if the are the like if the parents are slaves and the baby's baptized, like, can the parents get? baptized and then that's so there were cases
1: yeah there were cases where um adults were then baptized Mm -hmm. um, because in order to get out of slavery in puerto rico but most cases it didn't work it usually only worked if the child was baptized so a lot of parents what they would do was when they had a child they would make sure it was baptized so then the cycle would end with them
0: any other reactions to to this policy? Do you know of any like, government officials that weren't on board with this? Um, any like residents that may not be may not have been slave owners that were against this?
1: Yeah, so um, there were a few people, definitely more in the academic sphere, that were completely against it. They're like, "Are you serious? This doesn't make sense. This is completely inhumane." Uh, you know what are we doing? But honestly. They, there was a lot of huffing and puffing, but they also didn't want to lose their status, right, in society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really want to, like, push back on it that much. However, you did have hibaros who, you know, were white and um, poor who were like, that's kind of, like, messed up, right? Like, you know, and they, there were some type of, like, protests and, you know, just mobilizing and stuff against it. But it's nothing that really shook the that system in place
0: and then speaking of like speaking of characters who can you do you know anything more about this one brim person like you mentioned he was tight with queen isabella but you know what what yes. else should we know about this guy that um, sounds he was- like an awful person one of the most awful people in all of humanity's yes. existence um, yes
1: he was um he has a lot of bad fame. He was very, very racist, very overtly racist and proud to be racist. Um, he shed a lot of blood in Mexico, um, especially when it came to indigenous folks. He Mexico has a very, very sad and long, um, rough history with Juan Pim. Um But interestingly, even Spain. Right. So while he was Queen Isabella's, you know, ride or die at one point, Mm -hmm. he was the one who ended up turning against her for um, the Glorious Revolution. He was one of the biggest um, factors for her downfall. So he was upset because he was not going to be able to move up the ranks Um, I guess he was already at like the highest ranks and she said that she couldn't move him up anymore and he got really upset and he turned against her. And because of him and a few others, she had one of like, she ended up having to leave the throne. Um, So it's really interesting to see his story and see his dynamic on how he was very trusted and powerful in Spain and in the Caribbean and just Spanish America in general. And then all of a sudden that same person who had so much um, control and power is the same person who got Queen Isabella off the throne.
0: Wow. Stand up guy continues to to really show his character. Uh, My gosh. Uh, Quick sidebar though, Nina, you mentioned Glorious Revolution. Can you give us, like, a high-level, like, Cliff Notes version? What was the Glorious Revolution?
1: Yeah. So the Glorious Revolution is a really um, interesting time in Spain that I also wrote about when it comes to the Black Code because I felt that whatever was happening in Spain was trickling down in Puerto Rico. So the Glorious Revolution is, like, they're really starting to move away from um, this idea of, like, blackness, whiteness, to then let's be colorblind. Mm. Um and all this is happening in the in the eighteen hundreds, which is really, really impressive that already in the eighteen hundreds in Spain and the Caribbean we were thinking of race as colorblind right um and I'm not saying that that's the better racism absolutely not, but what I'm saying is it's very interesting that that early on in the Caribbean, racism is already being thought of that way because of what's happening in Spain so um this glorious revolution has a little bit of everybody in um, the mix. So it has people who are poor, people who are of color, people who um, are at high ranks and stuff like that, who people just feel unheard in Spain um, that are just angry at Queen Isabella. Um, And then you have Juan Prim, who's orchestrating everything. He's like, you know what? We deserve better. We need more. We deserve respect. And, you know, this is coming off from the man who helped her get where she is. Um, And who was siding with her up until that moment. And all because he was upset because he wasn't going to get any higher than where he already was. And so this glorious revolution happens and she's dethroned. And, and, you know, it's all what people call it is um, like it was a liberal um, revolution. So like they're moving away from like this conservative view on on society and politics and they're moving towards more of like a liberal view um, of politics and power and things like that which is why this idea of like colorblind racism comes into place
0: so looking at those other parts of of um outside of puerto rico um was the black code uh an outlier in puerto rico or were there other spanish territories with similar policies at the time?
1: There were other Spanish territories with similar policies, especially Cuba and um, Dominican Republic. But one thing that I really, really want to make, I just want to say is that we got a black code because honestly, Spain was so afraid of what happened in Haiti. Mm, The Haitian Revolution scared Spain to the core, no matter how early on that was, because as soon as they started seeing that other islands were revolting, they knew they had a problem. So one of the things that actually Juan Prim has written in his journals and stuff was, we need to stop Puerto Rico from becoming the next Haiti. So they did think that Puerto Rico did have potential of becoming the next Haiti. So that's something really important. Puerto Rico has always been very, very black. Puerto Rico has always had a big population of African descendant people. And that has always been very, very um, mobile. So, like, I think it's really important also to highlight that, like, Black folks in Puerto Rico were not just taking these hits and not doing anything about it. They were very, very, very much resistant towards it. They organized. They were always on the floor, you know, always resisting. Um, You know, they weren't doing it all. But I think they get little to no credit, right, whenever we think about... um, Slavery in Puerto Rico and history in Puerto Rico, we just never give credit where it's due. So again, for Juan Primo to sit in his journals and write, I'm afraid that Puerto Rico will become the next Haiti, shows that there was a lot of things happening there, which they were comparing to Haiti.
0: And yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I don't know that um, enough people know when they look at Haiti today, just how much when there was that revolution against the French and uh, black people took Haiti for their own, just how or globally the policies that were put in place to make sure that Haiti would not succeed, not just economically, socially, like just policy that would ultimately set it up, not set it up for success, as if Haiti didn't even exist. These policies were instituted at that time. Um, so looking at Haiti today, it's really a result of, I, I think, um, and, you know, keep me honest here, really points back to that moment in time of revolution that really just m- explains completely how uh, Haiti is in the status as it is in today. It's just a concentrated right. effort at a global scale. R- remind me the, the date of the Black Code again.
1: From 1815 to 1845. It's around that eight, that range. It's no later than that, though.
0: So looking at the effects of it then, because you mentioned that there was there was black people that uh, did take action that were not satisfied with this policy, didn't just take it. Um, I'm hearing the date range in my head that you said, and I immediately think of El Grito de Lares,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: um, which is fascinating because you talked about this shift on how people's status in society was in, in Puerto Rico was shifting, uh, to more based on race than class. So looking at something like, the uh, Grito de Lares, that was something that was almost like, uh, the equivalent of the poor people's campaign, you know, just unifying people across race. It was just based right. off working class, working poor. Like you, you basically went across those, uh, different racial demographics to organize against uh the powers that be in society that were making reality uh, a horrible mess for people at the time um and i always found that fascinating in puerto rico and now that you say that there was this shift with the black code that's making sense that something like that would even happen across racial boundaries yes. um so would you would it be fair to say that something like uh el grito was a result of the black code
1: yeah that's actually what my whole thesis is about i'm connecting the black code to El Grito de Lares, I'm basically saying that El Grito de Lares happened not just because people were just a random, random day, they were tired and they just wanted to revolt. Oh, I'm telling I'm telling you, there's years and evidence of this, and this is one of these pivotal moments, which is the black code. Um, because even during their speeches, they're saying, you know, they're trying to turn us against each other, meaning by like saying, You are white, I am black, right? Again, a very colorblind approach. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things happening during this time that are triggering El Grito de Lares, because in El Grito de Lares, um, one thing that people don't know about El Grito de Lares is that it's not only Puerto Ricans that are in it. You have Chinese people, Chinese immigrants that are involved in it. You have Italian immigrants that are involved in it. There's a lot of immigrants from different parts of the world that are also involved in El Grito de Lares because they're all experiencing just the wrath of the Spanish regime. And the racism and the stereotypes and things like that. So, yes, El Grito de Lares is definitely um, correlated to the Black Code.
0: Uh, Last question I have for you on the Black Code really has to go with like sources. How can people learn more about um, this topic? But um, before I get into that, is there anything else on the Black Code that we didn't cover that you feel people should be aware of?
1: Yeah, I think um, the Black Code set the tone for a lot of racial relations on the island in general, Um, even to what we're dealing with now in Puerto Rico and the racism now that's going on in Puerto Rico. A lot of it does stem back from the black code, Um, violence done to black women, violence done to black men, black children on the island um, goes back to the black code. There's a lot, I think we need to stop viewing our history Um, beginning with U.S. invasion. And we really need to start looking at, yes, U.S. invasion is a pivotal part of our history, but this goes way, way back. Um, And we need to acknowledge that Spain does have a very big debt to pay us. Um, I don't think we talk about that enough collectively.
0: How can we learn more about the Black Code?
1: Yeah. So um there's very limited information with the black code. That's why it took me a long time to write that thesis. Yeah. How but, long did it
0: take you, by the way, before you um, went, yeah.
1: it took me, oh my gosh, it took me like I my master's program was two years. So it basically wow. took me the two years. So yeah. Wild.
0: Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you. Uh,
1: no, no gosh. worries. Mm. So um definitely I would say you could search up honestly, like a simple Google search, like Juan Prime. Um, Black Code Puerto Rico it comes up there's a few good public historians that have done the work on it um, and they write good blogs on it that I also use as some of my um, secondary sources and then um, I mean primary sources then I honestly um, going into the Spanish digital archives um, because that's where I found Juan Pring's first draft Puerto Rico archives don't have it but Spain does so if people are interested, honestly, typing in um, digital archives of Madrid and then going in there and in their search bar, putting Juan Prim, it would come out as this Manes Africanos. Um, that would be the title of the Black Code. So that would definitely be one. Um, another book that I use that can be looked at would that Uh, basically it kind of like talks about the black code without saying it's the black code, um, is the four storied country. Uh, that's the title of the book. Oh my God. I'm blanking on the author's name. Um, I want to say it's Jose. Let me, let me check this The 4 storied country. (laughs) Yes. It's, um, Puerto Rico, the four storied country by Jose Luis Gonzalez. Um, That's definitely a really good source for people who are trying to understand um, slavery in Puerto Rico. Hey
0: there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, baseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show couple of last questions, some bonus questions before we wrap up our time together. Um, We've been asking all of our guests this question, and it really stems from this past Tokyo Olympics. Um, Jasmine Gamacho Quinn brought Puerto Rico uh, our second ever gold medal. Um, Amazing. Uh, And uh, after she won, there was all this chatter online. Is she Puerto Rican? Is she not? She wasn't born on the island. She doesn't speak Spanish. Why is she choosing to represent us now? Um, you know, she didn't have to represent Puerto Rico. She could have easily won a gold medal, uh, for the U S but she chose to run, um, uh, for Puerto Rico. She is Puerto Rican. Um, I don't think we can ignore the racial undertones there as well. Um, based off, uh, judging her, if she quote unquote looks Puerto Rican based on her features. Um, mm-hmm. but with all that being said, um, I initially thought, well, we should be asking people that question. What does it mean to be Puerto Rican? Um, so Nina, I'm, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. Um, what does being Puerto Rican mean to you?
1: Yeah, you know, that question always, it's it's just one of those questions that I always think about. And I'm like, why are we asking this, right? What about mm-hmm. X, Y person is triggering this question? Because it doesn't fit your stereotype of Puerto Ricanness? It doesn't fit your idea of Puerto Rican-ness. Um, or like, what is it? You know what I mean? Um, so my main thing is like, when I think of like, what makes me Puerto Rican or what makes somebody Puerto Rican is honestly like, that's the country that I rep, right? That's, that's what brings me peace. Whenever I go there, um, it feels like home or whenever I go there, um, you know, I think you don't have to know Spanish to be Puerto Rican. I think we've proven that we've, we're way over that right now. We're way over that right now. We have more Puerto Ricans living stateside then we have Puerto Ricans on the island. Um, You know, I think our culture makes us Puerto Rican. Um, I think the similarities across our culture. So I think it's important to understand that Diasporican culture is different from Puerto Rican island culture. Um, But it's still Puerto Rican culture Um, that makes us Puerto Rican. Um, also, who are we asking? Who's Puerto Rican? Are we asking Black folks who are Puerto Rican? Why are we asking Black folks if they're Puerto Rican if they're really Puerto Rican? And why are we asking them to prove their Puerto Ricanness to us? Um, because then that means we have to do some introspection and ask ourselves about bigotry and anti-Blackness within ourselves and in our culture and community. So um, again, I feel like I know this doesn't answer your question straightforward, but I really do think that, like, there's so many many things that classify us as Puerto Rican. I wouldn't be able to pick just one. Um, And I don't believe a box exists. I think that's very limiting.
0: We aren't. We shouldn't be putting each other into a box. And that's kind of why I asked that question, because, and you're right, like, we should not be having to ask each other this question. Um, But yeah, there's just some, like, people out there that want to challenge people's Boricuas card, Boricua cards. I don't understand it. Like, what does what what does this bring you? Right. Exactly. Anyway, um, on a lighter note, um, advice through life. You got your master's degree. Um, you're teaching at the Boys and Girls Club. Like, you're dropping knowledge on us uh, in this episode. Um, but looking at um moments and people that have influenced your life. Uh, You know, what would you say has been one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given?
1: Definitely has to be not to marry one thing. Mm. So I was told that when I was trying to figure out what I I wanted to do with, with my life, right? You know, I want I've wanted to be so many things, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be an FBI agent. Thank God that never went through because <laughs> um, now I know I I know too much. Um, so yeah, no, <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to be a psychologist. I wanted to be all these things and and I wanted I wanted to be free or I wanted to be. You know, stagnant. I, I I wanted so much in my life, professionally and and personally, and even romantically. And and one time I was told by you know by somebody who's very near and dear to me, it was like, why do you have to marry one thing though? Like, why can't you, what if you wanna be an educator? What if you wanna be an activist? Like, why do you, why do you feel like you need to tie down to one thing? Like, why can't you do it all? Um, and I know that sounds overwhelming, right? Like, oh wow, I'm gonna do it all. But it really, it liberated me. Um, I think we live in a society that makes us and forces us to choose one path, one thing, like one thing, want one thing. Um, And I just think that it's okay to want many things, want to do many things, see many things, be many things. Um, So my advice to anybody out there would be don't marry one thing. Um, You know, you don't have to be tied down to that your whole life. And that's very, very big for me. Um, Especially me being as a Puerto Rican woman living stateside, um, I struggled a lot with whenever I went back home to the island. People would be like, "Oh, now you're a gringa," Um, and then I come here and they're like, "Oh my God, you're too Puerto Rican for us! Like, get out of here!" So, like, I always struggled between those two. And then I spent a lot of my teenage life figuring out, like, you know, where do I fit and what do I have to be, and then when that person told me you don't have to be either, or, um, that was very liberating for me. Hmm.
0: That's uh that's great advice. I mean, it's and not that you need affirmation from me, but I think it's pretty cool that you're, uh, you're living that, I mean, community organizing, teaching, um, I mean, everything else you're doing. I mean, it's, 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 it's fun to see someone embrace the, uh, the juggling act that so many people might shy away from, you know, you don't have to marry one thing. I dig that. I dig that. Um, okay, Nina, we're at the end. We're at the finish line here. Um, for anybody that wants to keep this conversation going, wants to follow, uh, you know, keep up with you, follow you. Uh, what social media accounts should we know about? Do you have a website? Um, what do we, what should we know?
1: I don't have a website. I need to get on that. But,
0: um, (laughs) yeah. Hey, you know, throw that thesis up there. I mean, come on.
1: Um, but definitely follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter at is, I believe, Nina Vasquez twenty three. But it's um, Nina, my name, and I N A Vasquez without any vowels. So it's Nina and I N A V Z Q Z twenty three. Um, so follow me on Twitter. I'm always tweeting. I love doing um, threads, and I love making history um, as accessible as possible. Um, because I know what it is to not have access to archives or just history in general. So I really do think that making information accessible is really big and it's a big passion of mine. Um, So feel free to follow me there.
0: Nina Vasquez, historian, community activist and educator. Thank you so much for joining us on the Paseo podcast and educating us on the Black Code today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, everybody. This part of the, the episode is all about breaking down some of the news in Puerto Rico over the past couple of weeks. I have my lovely wife, Kim Ortiz, here joining us. So, uh, Kim, welcome back. Are you ready for this uh, Puerto Rico news segment? Are you ready to go through the list here? Let's go. All right. Uh, I put 20 minutes on the clock so we can, like, zoom through these as quickly as possible because ultimately the goal here is people listening, you're just hearing a snippet of this story the challenges, the call to action is go out, read these articles. Uh, these news stories are, are very much worth your time. So we have a bit of a variety here. So so first story right off the bat, Associated Press reported that there was widespread flooding in Puerto Rico. Uh, it led to a bunch of schools closing. Um, did you happen to see some of those videos on social media? I know we posted one on our Baseo podcast Instagram account, but did you get a chance to, to peep any of those?
2: Yeah, I saw the ones that you know, um, the podcast Instagram was sharing. I mean, it's devastating to see because we know that these landslides and flooding, like this happens almost every year. um, And with climate change, it's just going to continue to happen more frequently. I mean, I'm just wondering who, you know, is going to get benefits from like FEMA or I, I don't know if it's pronounced Core 3 or just Core But, you know, the people who look over the funds that are distributed when things like this happen, because the people who are affected the most are the people who can't afford to fix their property when things like this happen, who lose their cars for good, can't afford to buy a new vehicle. I mean, I saw a lot of vehicles underwater and you I mean, that's like a basic thing you need to hold a job. So I just it's devastating to see that. When I watch videos like this, I know who's going to suffer most from the effects of climate change and how it's affecting people's daily lives in Puerto Rico. And I don't see this as being a major problem for people who have money. It can easily solve these problems if, you know, they have to pay an insurance policy or something that simple to them to get out of these problems that working class people can't get out of. Yeah.
0: Well, oh, and when you look at some of these numbers, I mean, we're not saying this is like hurricane real levels of flooding, but in certain parts of of the island, I mean, it was it was like two feet of rain over the course of a, a week and over the course of two days, two feet of rain over the course of two days, um, or I think it was like 16 inches was the exact number, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you're cutting off people's abil- ability to get around the island. It's not like Puerto Rico has a transit system, so um, yeah, I mean, whether it's hurricanes earthquakes, um, you know, a mass flooding, just Laila just doesn't uh, just can't catch a break. Um, so hopefully the people that uh, are in need get the relief and aid that they deserve, that they need. Um, I wish I had like an organ. It's like times like these where I wish I had like a go to list of Puerto Rico organizations. That way we could tell people like, hey, this local organization is doing work and throw out the Alta. Vega Alta. Uh, those are the two places that were affected by the flooding. But if anybody's listening, if you know a good organization that's doing work around um you know climate relief um anybody that's experienced a climate disaster in Puerto Rico definitely hit the show up we'd love to share that information this next story is still developing probably one of my favorites I mean you and I really love a good protest uh there was a teacher's protest as of last Friday uh the lead up to that uh protest there was a building tension uh teachers want uh higher wages um safer pensions safer working conditions they don't want their pensions to continue to be cut some teachers are working three jobs just to stay afloat um some of those scenarios actually ending in death as we've seen in other reporting um so this is another video we actually posted on our instagram account uh, a bunch of clips of different protests i mean the protests have been going on for multiple days now at this point as of this recording but um what a sight to see right kim i mean the just the thousands of people um really uniting uh to to support teachers
2: yeah i thought it was really interesting to see you know with the great resignation happening across industries but especially with uh, you know the great resignation um happening the most with teachers starting with the pandemic this is the power of the people on the streets. Like they know this. This union, um, I believe they're called the Puerto Rican, you know, Teachers Association or something like that. Mm-hmm. They represent twenty five thousand teachers. Like they are a powerful union. I think they finally are learning how powerful they are because you have the Education Secretary uh, Miguel Cardona at, working with Puerto Rico to make sure. The teachers get this money and it's nice to see federal attention from the executive branch forcing Puerto Rico to do what to do right by teachers like it should have been doing. But it's nice to see Secretary Cardona using his ability to force the governor's hands in this and forcing you know, them to use the funds that they already have, this emergency relief fund to use that money where it's supposed to be used, which is for teachers and therefore for the kids. And I saw that the this temporary raise of $1,000 a month is only gonna last until September 2024. Um, and you know, they're still negotiating the contract. I, I hope that they can keep this raise permanently in addition to getting the full amount that they're asking for because It's just compared to teachers in the rest of the United States, as you mentioned, is just really so far under what the average teacher in America makes. And with utilities and groceries way higher on the island than they are here, that doesn't make sense economically for them to be making less than mainland teachers in the States, but be paying more in utilities and groceries each month. And I just love to see worker power. So I'm watching those videos, like you said, it's a it's a nice story for me to see also.
0: It's interesting too, cause as of yesterday, I wanna say this thing has grown into more than just a teacher's protest. It's turned into a workers protest. Yeah. And so we're seeing like firefighters and um I think the latest conversation Solidarity. was Yeah, yeah. I mean you're you're really seeing like uh, yeah, teachers, firefighters, um, you know, other workers in different unions. I think the last report I saw, there was um reports that maybe even like uh, service industry folks like people working in restaurants might end up joining this massive strike. There's actually a protest, not strike, but a, a well, yeah, I guess, yeah, strike. And there is a protest today as well. And just to like, give you a sense, I was like on Twitter through the Twitter black hole, and I found these, these numbers really interesting, um, just to kind of give you a sense or people listening, a sense of just how big the strike of public sector workers is in Puerto Rico right now. So you have, this is as of yesterday's protest, the firefighters union said that there are more than 30 fire stations closed on the island. That's 80% of their workforce.
2: This yeah. is them joining in solidarity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Only,
0: this one, this, uh, and these are all just re- different p- reporters in Puerto Rico that are tweeting, you know, this information. But this was uh, only 18, this one for public school teachers, only 18% of public school teachers reported to their jobs today. Um, this is for yesterday's uh, protest. Uh, that was 10% less than during the protest last Friday. So, an even growing number of teachers, because remember that first Friday protest, only 28% reported on the job. So, there's definitely a massive number of teachers who are just done with being paid pennies on the dollar. Um, the last two I'll share 50% of state medical emergency bases are closed on the island. So, that's your ambulances. Uh, and then, last one was employees of the judicial branch. This one I found interesting employees of the j- judicial branch joined today's march. That was yesterday, and gave the president of the Supreme Court, Maite Oronos, uh 48 hours to rule on their demands for a salary increase, or they will call a strike. So that's 30% of their workforce were, were absent today, and that's mostly bailiffs. So huge waves. And we ha- and again, that's in addition to like maybe even waiters, other service industry folks might join in on this. So this is growing.
2: I love to hear that because you have... I, I believe that unfortunately uh, at least in my world where I'm surrounded by union people all the time, yet there are still plenty of people claiming that the the support for teachers just isn't there anymore. They need to cut it out, you know, they need to calm down, they need to, you know, get back to the classroom and focus on students. This is for the students. It's always for the students. These men and women don't get into these jobs as teachers because they don't care about kids because if they cared about money, honey, they would work somewhere else. So for people to act like, oh, they need to get back to the classroom. They don't care about the kids. It's always about the kids. It's always about more better resources, better safety conditions so that they can teach in a safe environment and a welcoming environment and an environment where kids feel nurtured. And I just, I hate that people you know, act like the the sympathy for teachers is the time is up on that. That's, you know, they need to get over their problems and just go back to the classroom. And when you see all this support coming in from the public sector and the private sector on the islands, that tells me the public support is there and they understand, even the parents understand that the teachers need to be paid a decent wage. It's not even a living wage they're asking for. They're just asking for a not substandard uh pathetic wages. I mean, it's it's a disgrace what they're making right now.
0: Yeah. And, and just to, I, again, I, I love like reading these numbers. People listening are probably like, oh my gosh, I hate, what. just give me the quick facts. But I feel like these numbers are so important. Like I was checking out uh, Indeed and all these other career websites to get a sense of what the average uh, salary for a teacher is in Puerto Rico. So in Puerto Rico, they're making $34,760 a year. That's compared to the lowest paying state, Mississippi which makes over $45,000 a year. Um, Coupled with the fact that teachers in Puerto Rico have not received a wage increase since 2008. Imagine working a job one year to the next and never seeing a raise for over a decade. Why would you even want to keep working? It's a miracle that they have teachers that they have right now that care enough to protest. And, um, I think, and I think, like thinking about other service workers, minimum wage in Puerto Rico is like eight dollars and fifty cents. So it's not like here in Chicago where we're pushing or we're at fifteen, I think, right now. Um, so it's like pretty pitiful when you consider the the financial crisis that Puerto Rico's in, the, the rising cost of inflation. Um, it, it's just mind boggling why there'd be any resistance to paying teachers and other uh, workers their their fair share um it's just weird and governor Pierluisi said exactly that talking point you shared kim that oh i really what we should be prioritizing is the kids making really demonizing teachers it's always behind hiding behind the kids as an excuse not to pay people uh what their what their profession is worth this is very much tied to that debt restructuring plan we talked about um last time we recorded the pr news segment um that debt restructuring plan is only one step and a number of steps that have been taking to really chip away at Puerto Rico's education system. Next story, um, this one, people probably already know a lot about. We, we posted about this on our Instagram page, on our social channels as well, but there was a report by El Centro uh, Periodismo Investigativo that showed that permit approvals for coastal projects were fast-tracked during the current governor, Pedro Pierluisi's first year in office. So there's a 29% increase in construction permits. Um, Shocking. Yeah. Coastal towns. It's a hot commodity for people that really want to own, quote unquote, their own beach.
2: Well, I also think of, you know, this uh, push to create world class, you know, what they claim world class cities, tourist friendly cities. Um, You see it, you know, here in Chicago as well, where when Ron became mayor and, you know, working with developer friendly aldermen. They're always going to prioritize their developer friends because that's where they get money. So when it comes around time to fundraise and to put more money in their packs, this is the people they have to appease. And so if that means selling out the islands, then so be it. It's it's unfortunately um, an what, what how what does the expression go like same story different day or same shit some
0: same shit different day but same story oh, I know
2: okay uh, hey same i shit, just put day. a
0: little explicit sign on the episode same. and we're good big thing here is what's the end goal so if you're not protecting the beachfront properties like a lot of people are complaining these permits are being approved without that you know you're really doing significant damage in the long term to the island and protecting people's homes uh so who knows if people are just i guess what i'm trying to say if people with these permits being increased at such a rapid clip if you're only concerned about making money and building new constructions and that's your only priority i mean i mean w- you're not thinking about how you're displacing people you're not thinking about how you're affecting the environment there's no parameters in place to really protect what's being built on a certain property around that property
2: yeah i could get how people on the other side of this you know trying to my best to see it from their perspective would be like, well, yeah, it's a pandemic. Uh, we need to create jobs. They're always going to say this is a job creator. That's, you know, the right's favorite talking point is job creators. Okay, um, at the risk of sounding like AOC, there are other ways to create jobs, and the island certainly needs that. So to say that this is uh, the only way to create jobs on the island is kind of a, it's a pathetic excuse, in my opinion, to give away property that should be either public or affordable to people who live on the island.
0: Um, Well, speaking of uh, properties, speaking of privatization, speaking of coastal towns, Uh, Wepa Paloo- Palooza Wepa Palooza was uh, love, I the love name. that name. That's so great. Uh, <laughs> happened, I want to say two weekends ago at this point, but essentially, yeah, like
2: right after your last episode.
0: Like right after the last episode, it happened. Um, high level, high level view of this story. Um, couple owned a property in the Ocean Park residential area. There, there was a group of people trying to play on the beach right behind them. And um, my goodness, as soon as these people were, were setting up to play their game, uh, this couple that owned the home uh, just in front of the beach came out and tried to kick those people out, basically claiming that they owned the beach. And when they were confronted on this, because there, uh, there's no such thing as private beaches in Puerto Rico legally, like you can't legally do that, um, they were met with a lot of, um, well, I'll just say this. The big quote from that confrontation was the rich person that thought they owned the beach. She basically said, who "We believe is Puerto Rican." Basically said, "When you have a million dollars and to buy a home, then you can have an opinion. Or when you have a million dollars, then you can have an opinion." Um, what
2: did they call her? Boricua Karen.
0: Boricua Karen. Yeah. So all these flyers started. Was that coming
2: her name?
0: Just... <laughs> I just. Her real yeah. name's not Karen, but it was Boricua. I think it was Karen el Boricua or something like that, or or La Boricua Karen. I can't remember how they put in their <laughs> posters, but. It was pretty great. Um, number of different protest posters. Uh, needless to say, people I know you did
2: not just them. say her name was her name wasn't really Karen. I don't think anybody thought that.
0: <laughs> okay. Oh, OK. Crazy video. And that's not something that we haven't seen before. But uh, it led to huge protests uh, that following weekend. I think there's just people taking up the entire beach. Um, yeah.
2: Bigger than I think a lot of people expected and certainly her. I don't think Karen expected all those
0: people to show up on Saturday. Nope, definitely not. Um, and, uh, again, uh, private beaches are illegal in Puerto Rico, but interestingly enough, a lot of these rich communities, as you would expect, have loopholes that they take advantage of, such as making it near impossible to get across a beach. So you might see, be walking down a beach in Puerto Rico. You start getting to like an affluent part of the coast you'll start to see rock barriers under the excuse that, well, we're trying mm-hmm. to break waves, you know, it's an environment mm-hmm. thing. But by doing that, you're making it impossible for people to get across those rocks, at least not safely to get into the area. So it's their way of in a, and a messed up way of making the beach private, even though it is illegal.
2: Yeah. I have strong feelings about privatization of any public property, because um, it's just essential to democracy. I mean, they wouldn't have been able to protest this if that was not legally public property because if we give up all our public property, where do people protest? Where do people hold movements? Where do people hold you know, meetings that are for the masses? It's just so essential that we maintain our public lands, our public property, because we can't... Um, we can't rely on people who have interest in developing property to not take up every inch they can if they're allowed to. We have to preserve something for the public. And it's it's important that I'm so glad that it's illegal to privatize beaches. Like you said, people are always going to find a way around it. But um, the law's on their side. And it was beautiful to see the thousands of people who came out to reminds people that you can't do that shit.
0: Well, and speaking of privatization, I think that's a good segue to our next news story. So the head of Puerto Rico's US-imposed fiscal control board uh, announced that they were stepping down. So pretty big Mm -hmm. deal. Uh, Her name's Natalie Juresco. Uh, She announced this, I want to say, last Thursday, according to the Associated Press, so about a week ago. Um, Mm -hmm. So she's stepping down after five years as the executive director of the board. no real I'm not gonna, as to why. but
2: uh, Yeah, I'm not going to lie. When when we I first heard this, when you told me about it, I was like dying for a conspiracy theory. Me I was too. like, ooh, what yeah. happened? What went down? Yeah. Wasn't that exciting when I did some research? I think she just pulled up Paul Ryan. She came and did what she needed to do and dipped. Um, mm-hmm. But when I was looking into her, I was like... Um, this woman is a Ukrainian investment banker. Like, that's her background. Um, was I don't know why I assumed it would be a Puerto Rican. What crazy thought, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, I, did, I don't think there's many her... Puerto
0: Ricans on the board.
2: <laughs> Yo, there's like <laughs> maybe one, one, maybe two. Yeah, maybe uh, two. Definitely yeah. one, possibly two. Yeah. Um, but this woman's background, I was so ashamed, Joshua. She's a DePaul graduate. No! Yes. Yeah, I was like, Ugh. girl... On, um, a county major so a maybe that's major. the reason but um once to harvard afterwards yeah did her five years in dip there is the puerto rican that i think you might be referring to is betty rosa from new york okay and yeah. she seems to have like a nice education background so i don't i didn't look that much into her so i'm not gonna say like i definitely want her to you know mm-hmm. be brought up to executive director but it yeah. would be nice to have a puerto rican or new york rican, with an education background, if, um, she, you know, has progressive policies, that would be great, but yeah, Yeah. it would be cool if if she was brought up, they said they're looking for a new one. So I wonder if she's being considered
0: as we all know, not all skin folk are kin folk. So even though that person's Puerto Rican, if their policies are crap, you know, the Island is still doomed. I mean, that fiscal control board shouldn't be there to begin with, but I hear you. I mean, it would be nice to have more representation. It would be nice to have representation from somebody on the Island, uh, but ultimately, if you're gonna mm-hmm. have a board like that, you have to have people that are that have the mindset for to be of the people and for the people. Whereas this fiscal control board, as you mentioned, their executive director, who doesn't step down until April first, is in has a background in investment yep. banking. Yeah. Yep. Mm, fun times. Ugh. Well, sp- I mm-hmm. go ahead.
2: You know, I, I also found it interesting. Just you know as a reminder of like, what the whole point of this board is, is that, you know, it's to remain in place indefinitely until four consecutive balanced budgets are produced, which in my mind, you know, as a person who lives in Illinois, I just think that's insane, because imagine if they did that here in our state, we haven't had before Pritzker, we haven't had a balanced budget for 20 years. So We don't get these type of things here. It's solely because we're a colony that we get, you know, our hands slapped every time they don't like the way we're doing something.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then it's just from that point on, it's a snowball. One austerity measure after the next. Um, And that's what a lot of people are afraid of and why they're against something like PROMESA, Um, again, LA JUNTA, or again, the fiscal control board, whatever you want to call it. Um, But speaking of austerity measures, I think you mentioned the current executive director of the board went to Harvard. Uh, There was another story that made news because the uh, Harvard Kennedy School was hosting a panel on Puerto Rico's economy, but ended up being blasted by Puerto Ricans. And the, I want to say Latino rebels reported on this, Um, but basically um, it was going to be a virtual discussion. Uh, It was titled Giving Puerto Rico the Economic Future It Deserves. And it was going to be hosted by David Rockefeller um, of the Center for Latin American Studies. And then the panelists were going to be Andrew Biggs who is, drumroll please,
2: on the board, mm-hmm. a Republican member, you're good.
0: You just too excited. Just um, this say. is all good. Republican member of Puerto he is a Republican member of Puerto Rico's federally imposed fiscal control board and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank. And uh, Antonio Weiss, who's a research fellow at the Masovar Romani Center for business and government. Since then, the Harvard Kennedy School did announce that the web this webinar on Puerto Rico's economic outlook would be rescheduled for February 17th. So they pushed it back. Um, looks like they're gonna to try to add another panelist to the list of speakers, um, because the two that they have right now are really just biased towards Puerto Rico being um, under these strict austerity measures. So what do you think about that? A panel about Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, sounds about white, um, but <laughs> I I thought it was pretty yeah, funny yeah. what uh, the Latino rebels founder um, sent to them over, when yeah. he was like complaining about it because one of his questions was. So how much time has Mr. Big spent living in Puerto Rico during his time on the board? Like, that is such a petty question, and I love it. <laughs> hey.
0: Well, yeah, Julio, who's been on the show before, I think when we were interviewing him, he mentioned that he was a Harvard grad as well. So it's like, it's surprising. It would have been real easy invited. for them to call him up. Right. It's not like he's some scrub, some random person that has a Harvard degree. Like, this man is literally in the media, created a media outlet. He some scrub about with a Harvard values. degree. <laughs> there's a lot of them out there no offense to anybody listening that went to harvard but if but if you heard my last (laughs) statement you know who i'm talking about but um (laughs) but anyway um yeah so just another case of unfortunately a white uh majority white institution trying to do something what they think is good really uh having bad news written all over it um poorly planned poorly executed. Uh, not something I would ever want to go to or encourage anybody to go talk about because it's just people that have no vested people that have no vested interest in the true sovereignty or the true future of Puerto Rico trying to dictate what it can do. And as we've seen, the decisions the fiscal control has made, the pressure it's put on Puerto Rico's government, we find ourselves today where people still don't have roofs over their head. Uh people are striking. Um, and it's just one thing after the other that starts to get chipped away as a society, in, including things like public services, all because this fiscal control board wants to serve Wall Street instead of the people who actually live in Puerto Rico. Now, everything we talked about was pretty heavy, and I try to put in like one or two like lighter Puerto Rico news stories. I'll admit it's really hard when I'm looking for some. Um, I know that it's hard for you, too, because it's just like man, everything is shitty, man but uh there are some good things happening in the world bad bunny did uh not bad bunny sorry um j-lo made he
2: did do a collaboration that was are you referring to that's true i forget the name of the brand but it was like challenging gender norms because he wore the heels and dress
0: that's true yeah i was thinking of different photo shoots yeah the bad bunny i forget which which um magazine it was but yeah
2: well, he did a Vogue. These are two different things. He did a Vogue um, shoot, but he also did a collaboration with a brand. And again, I forget the name of the brand, but it was, it, I don't want to say went fire rolled, but a lot of not so open minded people were commenting on you know him wearing heels, him wearing a dress and them just having a problem with people living their lives and wearing what they want to wear.
0: Yeah. Well, I thought he looked great.
2: Yeah. Um, we did socks put with a- heels. Always a good look. Socks
0: with <laughs> heels. You can never go wrong. Just like socks and sandals. Am I right, everybody? Um, <laughs> if you look at uh, our Instagram account, we regularly will put polls up there. And uh, we're just on a little bit of a hol- Puerto Rico celebrity kick uh, a couple days ago. And we put a poll up saying, hey, what do you all think of uh, Bad Bunny's um, latest photo shoot? And uh, it was like 85%. 87% really liked it, but there was like 12% or 88% really liked it, but like 12% didn't. i was like, who are these, who are these 12% people that are hating on his photo shoot?
2: The loud minority.
0: True. <laughs> Biggest streaming artist in the world, so he's fine. J-Lo made the cover, the March cover of Rolling Stone, talked about uh, her rise in the music and movie world. Um, so pretty exciting stuff for for JLo. Not the first, not the last cover she's been on, but some pretty nice photos they they took of her. Did you get a chance to look at them all or no?
2: Yeah, she's, she looks good. Yeah. What's new? I know, right? <laughs> I was looking good.
0: I kind of debated putting this in here because, like, when we saw this, I think we were both like, "Oh, she's kind of over in JLo." Like, you know, like, not like in a bad way, but it'd be great if we could have more Puerto Rican artists making uh, the cover of these bigger uh, news outlets like Rolling Stone.
2: Did you get a chance to look at the Oscar nominees that came out? Because I think there's a chance a Puerto Rican might have been nominated for an Oscar for West Side Story because there were a few West Side Story nominations um, for actress and Mm -hmm. um, I want to say supporting actress as well.
0: Yeah, and I can actually look that up here. I think we had tweeted about that. And actually, funny enough. Oh,
2: okay, you did.
0: Yeah, so it was... um, Ariana Debose, so she's part. She's part Puerto Rican. Rican Yeah, she's part Puerto Rican. Um, she could make history if she wins. So if she were to win an Oscar, her and uh, Rita Moreno would join an exclusive club of pairs of actors to win an Oscar for playing the same character. So Ariana Debose played. Oh wow! Yeah, so Ariana Debose played um, uh Anita in in um, West Side Story. Um, so did, uh, Rita Moreno in their original. So, yeah. That's
2: insane. Yeah, that would be, are they the only Puerto Ricans that have won Oscars, though?
0: I don't think they're the only Puerto Ricans that have won Oscars. But I could be wrong. Okay. Let's see.
2: Um, Jose Ferrer. Wait, receiving are a nomination. Oh,
0: Jose Ferrer was the first Puerto Rican born. We nominated
2: him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He received, okay, um, uh, Well, cool. uh, he won Best Actor. Yeah, so Jose Ferrer first puerto rican oscar winner hmm. learn something new every day but yeah so i think oh. there's only been two other pairs that have won an oscar for playing the same character but also speaking about speaking of that um puerto rican's in the oscar Lin manuel miranda is nominated for an oscar for i think i believe one of the uh, songs in encanto um actually, okay. I could, and i can look that up to see you exactly are you you Yeah, remember.
2: are you sure Cause- I don't remember seeing his name on there when I looked at the nomination. Yeah, it's for
0: it's for best original song. He would actually win an EGOT. Let's see. And
2: when I look up music original song, Encanto. Oh, that's what you're talking about. So, original song.
0: Yes, original best original song for Dos Oruguitas, Oruguitas. So anybody, my my pronunciation's off. Help me out. Help me Those
2: out. Those oruguitas.
0: Oruguitas. <laughs> oruguitas. This is going to become a running joke. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, I, we still haven't seen Encanto. We really have to watch it because like everybody and their mama around us is telling us we need to see it. Um, They're
2: like, you haven't
0: seen it yet. Know. It's like, you got to talk about Bruno, even though we don't talk about Bruno. I'm like, who's Bruno? I don't know what that is. So, I do not even get
2: that reference. Well, that sounded like a
0: reference. It was a reference. So <laughs> another reminder why we got to put it on our list. So, all right, that's the Puerto Rico news segment for this episode. Uh, I Once again, shout out to my lovely wife, Kim, for helping me break down the latest news. Uh, if you want to um, keep up with uh, any other news stories between now and our next episode, if you can't wait to hear our commentary, our opinions, our rundown on things, check out our social media page because we're always posting stuff on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can also follow us on all three of those channels by just looking up Baseo Podcast. It's the same handle across the board. Uh, if you want to see the video uh, portions of our episodes, check out our YouTube channel, Bossel Podcast, or youtube.com/slash Podcast. Really trying to get to that magic 200 subscriber list, so follow us there. Um, as always, if you want to pitch a story, uh, if you want to ask a question, if you just want to, you know, connect. Uh, Visit our website, baseomedia.org, to do just that. Be sure to check out our next episode when we interview J.L. Torres. He's an author, educator. Uh, He wrote a book called Migrations. It's a collection of of different stories that he's put together. He's also working on a series about Roberto Clemente. So we talk about Clemente, we talk about his book, um, and we just talk about his roots from Puerto Rico. Uh, Pretty interesting guy. Looking forward to sharing that story with you all. Until then. Uh, We'll see you in a couple weeks. Cuidate.